Hey guys, good morning. Good to see you. If you could please open your Bible to Genesis chapter 18 and 19. That's where we're hanging out this morning. Genesis 18 and 19. Um, Tim Keller once said uh, this. He said, worry is when we don't believe that God will get it right. And bitterness is what we experience when we believe that God got it wrong. So those are two things we probably all struggle with a bit, bitterness and worry. So worry is the idea that we believe that God will not get it right, and bitterness is this feeling we get when we believe that God got it wrong. And when you really think about it, that, that, that sentence can be summed up with the crux of the matter being this question of, is God just? Is God just? What I mean is, do you, do you really believe this morning? I mean, do you really believe that God is just? Not just do you say it, but do you really believe that God is just? Meaning that you believe that God always gets it right, and he never gets it wrong. That his wisdom and judgment, they aren't swayed by like having a bad temper or something, or uh, he's not influenced by some ulterior motives, or he can really see the whole picture. You know, he has the whole story in front of him. Is God just? Do you really believe that? Uh, see, this morning in Genesis 18 and 19, uh, we're in a text today that, quite honestly, it'll make you squirm a little bit. Uh, it's kind of gross. Not kind of, it's full out gross. It's sobering, and in a real sense, uh, this whole week I almost felt like I needed to apologize for it, but um, then I was like, well, why would I do that? I didn't put this in the Bible. It's here, and God put it here, and it's here for a reason. It's actually a really powerful passage. It's the infamous story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. And honestly, you don't even have to be a Christian. You don't even have to ever read the Bible. Uh, you've probably heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, we, we use this terminology just even in pop culture at times. We are all aware, even if you've never read this story in your entire life, you know that Sodom and Gomorrah were probably not nice places to live. And you see that that's, that's very true this morning. We've all heard this story. We all have a sense of it to a degree. And like every story, you guys, there is a tension. There's a conflict that's created, and ultimately there is a resolved climax within every story. And in this passage today, our climax is found in chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. But our tension or our conflict comes not from the question, what's going to happen to Sodom? The tension in this story comes from what Abraham raises in verse 25. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's like the, the tension, that's the conflict that we're hanging on here. He's saying, God, you are the judge of the earth. Are, are you going to do what is just? Are you just, God? Do, do you always get it right? Do you never get it wrong? I think this question is honestly magnified if you just think about last week. Remember last week, we looked at the story of how Sarah laughs at God, and, and God proposes this rhetorical question to her. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too impossible for God? And we're meant to believe that no, nothing is impossible for God, which is a pretty scary thing because you go, if there's nothing impossible for God, if he could do anything, anything at all, then this is an important question. Is whatever he's going to do, is it just? Is it right? If he could do anything, will he act justly? 
And so this morning, these are the two questions that our, our story raises. Is God just? Secondly, is anyone righteous? And thirdly, I want to ask you this morning, who are you in the story? Who are you in this story? So first, is God just? Read with me in chapter 18, starting in verse 16. It says, Then the men, who were these angel messengers who just hung out with Sarah and Abraham at their tent, so these, these three guys, they set out from that tent, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So these men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham, he stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said to God, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And God said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. So we are told here in verses 16 through 21 that God wants to reveal what he's about to do in Sodom and Gomorrah to Abraham because he has chosen Abraham. That's what he says. But we immediately pick up on the point or the theme of the story in verse 19 because God tells you why he chose Abraham. He gives you his purpose for choosing him. What does it say? It says, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what? By doing righteousness and justice. Guys, this tells you that the ways of God or the way God acts is always in line with righteousness and justice. And these two words that are in this sentence, they go hand in hand, honestly, throughout the entire Bible. And they're really important words that you and I often really misunderstand. So real quick, minor Hebrew lesson here, okay? Uh, this will be on the screen, okay? Uh, this word righteousness is the Hebrew word tzedakah. It means being just. It's not doing justice, it's being a just person. It's, it's usually translated being righteous. It refers to living a life of right relationships with people. Uh, Alec Motier defined it this way, it's on the screen. Those who are right with God and therefore committed to putting right 
all the relationships in life. So this is like a social word, you guys. This isn't saying Abraham is, is just in his private house by himself a really holy, moral person. That's not what it's talking about. It's a very social word. It refers to your day-to-day kind of living uh, in which you're supposed to conduct your, your relationships, all of them, family, friends, society, with fairness, generosity, and equity. But the second word is justice. It's the Hebrew word mishpat. And this word means to treat people equitably. It means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status. So it means more than just the punishment of wrongdoing, you guys. It means giving people their rights. If I could sum it up how these two work together, if tzedakah uh, was pervasive in the world, there would be no need for mishpat. If everyone was righteous, there would be no need for justice. So this was the call of Abraham. It was to like raise up an entire family, a nation, who, who lived this way, to be in a right relationship with God and then commit to putting all the relationships in the world right, okay? So this is like his calling. And now the question is, is God live this way? Or is God just calling Abraham to live this way? And so these guys head down out to scout out Sodom and Gomorrah to see if these cries, which these, this phrase cry out is, is a cry that is coming to the ear of God, a cry of violent justice or injustice and oppression. That's what this word means. And so they're going down to scout out what these cries are. And if these cries are accurate, God, the judge, he's going to exercise mishpat, just like he did with the flood in Noah, okay? So Abraham, what does he do? He doesn't go, yeah, go get them, guys. Go, go get them, you know, seek it out and, you know, smoke it, you know? Like he doesn't do that. No, he's really concerned, He's really concerned. Do you remember why? Remember back when uh, David Kozlicki did a wonderful job uh, like a month ago teaching us on Genesis chapter 14? You guys remember what happened there? Abraham became the wealthiest person on the face of the planet. He, in like his small band of people, defeated like all these crazy powerful nations. And at the end of that story, what happens? The king of Sodom comes to Abraham and he says, give me the people and you can keep the wealth. And Abraham says, no, you can have the people, the people meaning Lot in his family. And he goes, and you can also have the wealth. So all of a sudden, the nation of Sodom is like, the, or the city of Sodom is like the wealthiest city on the face of the planet, and that's where Lot is. So when Abraham hears that this is going to happen to Sodom, he immediately thinks, uh, my nephew is there. That's where my little nephew lives. And so Abraham embarks upon this kind of iconic intercession with God on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, he's like, if there's, if there's 50 righteous, if there's 50 sedekahs, God, uh, you know, will you wipe away the righteous with the just? He, he, he's saying, God, you can't bring mishpat on sedekahs. You can't bring justice to righteous people. That would be messed up if you did that. That wouldn't be just. And God says, okay. So Abraham approaches God again in 27. He's like really humble about it. He's like, I am just but dust and ashes. You know, what about 45, you know? And God's like, okay, you know? And then he's like, oh, please don't be angry, but what about 30, you know? And he like keeps going down, you know, how about 20? Okay, 10, okay. And then you're kind of left there hanging about on the, on the number 10, right? So this is, this is honestly a truly kind of strange passage of intercession. 
uh, here. It's kind of like Abraham is like a reverse auctioneer or something. He's like, do I hear 50, 50, 40, 40, 30, you know, and just going on down. You know, we get down to 10, and we're just wondering, you know, what is going to happen here? We're left wondering what is going to happen. Is God just? And I think back, my parents are here visiting from Denver. I had the best parents in the world, still do, not did, still do. Amazing parents. And uh, just imagine this, imagine me and my two sisters uh, growing up with my parents, and my parents said to us one day, hey, if you guys do your chores every single day this month without missing a day, uh, we will take you on a week vacation to Disneyland, right? Or Maui if we're older, whatever, you can go as an adult, okay, Disneyland, we'll say Disneyland, okay? And uh, they said, but if you miss one day, you can't go, all right? And so, uh, for the sake of the story, let's just say my sisters did the whole month, and I did every day but like one day, right? Which, that would have been me. I would have been the one who didn't do it right, okay? And so, uh, let's just imagine that happened. My parents, if the question is, are they just, they have two options, okay? They can leave me behind and take my sisters, that would be just. Or they could take all of us, correct? That would still be just, What wouldn't be just is if we just didn't go because I screwed up, because I didn't follow through. Why? Because my sisters were sedekah, right? They were righteous. It would be unjust of them to sweep away them with my wickedness, so to speak, right? right, This is the picture here. Is God just? And Abraham, you guys, he is appealing to the justice of God. He's questioning it. He's searching deep down into the character of God, and he he goes, does God always get it right and never get it wrong? And so if the story leads us there, it next leads us to the question, is anyone righteous? And this is where we get into the nitty-gritty. Look in verse, or chapter 19. I'm going to read this thing. It says, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last, surrounded the men, or surrounded the house, and they called to Lot. Where, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. They said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands, these angels did, and they brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, daughters, Sons or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. 
So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. So as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved? He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I could do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. There is not a man on earth to come into us after, all the manner, uh, after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father." So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger also bore a son and called his name Benami. He's the father of the Ammonites to this day. Uh, man, yuck, right? Uh, there are only, uh, we have these two guys in this scene that, that, that head down into this place. And the reason for two is thought to believe that there were three, now there's two, and God said, I will go out to search out the cries of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the reasoning is that the other guy, the third guy, went to Gomorrah, because we see here at the end, Gomorrah is included in this mishpat, okay? So in this scene, it mirrors just like the previous chapter. These guys visit the tent of Abraham and Sarah. Here they visit the tent of, of Lot, and Lot says, stay, rest, eat. He even pressures them, to, and they, they do almost. They don't get much rest, because things get really ugly, Right? Things are actually pretty unspeakable, if you think about it. 
You have a bunch of guys from the town, they come over and they want to know who these guys are that Lot is hosting, and Lot nervously says, guys, come on, just, just leave these guys alone. And in turn, he offers up his two virgin daughters to give to this crowd of men, and he says, you can just do with him whatever you want, right? And they don't take the offer. They actually get really mad at him. They go, oh, you're such an outsider. You're not even a part of Sodom. You were born and raised here, and now you're telling us what to do. They, they don't want just a piece of these guys that Lot is housing. They want a piece of Lot as well. As the fact that they reject this offer of his daughters um, isn't because they're righteous. These guys aren't going, that's disgusting, Lot. We're not going to do that. That's not at all why they reject it. Actually, it's probably showing you it was pretty common in this culture to even do. But more so, it's showing you that whatever this mob wants to do with these two guys in Lot isn't some nice act of kind hospitality. Right? They're probably wanting to assault these guys. And so, what do these guys do? They grab Lot, they bring him inside the house, they strike these psycho men with blindness, so they exhaust themselves trying to like grope for the door, it says, and they tell Lot to leave, grab his family, because they're going to destroy the city. And then Lot turns into this evangelist, and he goes to his future sons-in-law of his two daughters, and he says, hey, we got to get out of here. And they're like, you're crazy, Lot. You've lost it. And so here, Lot goes from being an evangelist. He's telling others to leave, but what's Lot doing? What does it say? It says he lingers. He's like, get out. But then he's like, eh. Right? He lingered. So what do the messengers of God do? They, say, they don't say, uh, suit yourself, Lot. No, they don't do that at all. What does it say? They seize him and his wife and his daughters, and they set them outside the city by physical force. Why do they do this to Lot? Because Lot was the righteous one. He was the Sedekah, right? Not at all, right? What does it say? It tells you why they did it. It says the Lord was merciful to him. Let me ask you, what is mercy? Mercy is when you show someone compassion when they really deserve justice. It's withholding from someone what they actually deserve. Notice here what happens. God is merciful to Lot. He does not deserve it. He is not a righteous person at all. And then we see in verse 28 that God destroys through judgment Sodom and Gomorrah. And you might think back to the story we just read. You might think, I thought God wasn't going to do it if he found 10 righteous people there. And if he's really just, he wouldn't even do it if he found one righteous there, because that righteous person would have been swept away with the wicked as well, right? Exactly. That's the whole point. We see from the actions of Lot that there weren't any people at all in Sodom that were righteous. We see that his wife wasn't righteous when she looks back and, and turns into a pillar of salt. We see that the following scene, that his daughters were definitely not righteous as well. No one is righteous. And the point is this, you can take the people out of Sodom, but you can't take the Sodom out of the people. It's exactly what you see happening here. Lot and his family had lived in Sodom for so long that Sodom didn't just rub off on them a little bit. It changed their hearts. It changed their hearts. It doesn't say they were ripped out of Sodom because they were righteous, but because God was merciful. God was merciful. 
Guys, why did God show mercy to Lot and not to Sodom? That's really the question. And you get your answer in verse 29. God remembered Abraham is what it said. It says, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out. Why did God show mercy to Lot? Because he remembered Abraham. That's what it says. He remembered his promise to Abraham that those who bless him will be blessed. Those who curse him will be cursed. And Lot, guys, he was tied to Abraham. He blessed Abraham. Therefore, he was blessed. He wasn't righteous, but Lot had Abraham. God remembered Abraham. That's the point. So we've got our answer here definitively to our questions. Is the judge of all the earth just? Yes. Is there anyone righteous? No. It would have been saved. Put it to you this way. Let's just say that I wanted to run the Boston Marathon, okay? Um, I don't. That sounds awful, okay? But let's just say I did 26.21 miles, okay? Let's just imagine that I really wanted to do this. I wanted to run the imagine. Uh, this is my imagination, okay? Um, the qualifying time for me this year, I just looked it up, uh, for my age group, would I have to, to qualify for the Boston Marathon, I'd have to run that race in three hours and 10 minutes, okay? Uh, let's just say that I ran it and I came in at four hours, okay? That would be a miracle. That's like a nine-minute mile. I can't do that now on like a mile. And so let's just imagine that miraculously we're dreaming up, okay? It's things here. Okay, let's just say I, I did it, okay? And I came in at, at four hours, and the Boston Marathon people said to me, sorry, uh, you can't run in the thon, right? I'm guessing that's what they call it, right? So you can't run in this. What am I going to say to them? Am I going to say, that is so not fair? That's not just of you at all. I finished the race, right? I showed up, I ran in it. That's not fair at all. That's not just. Of course not. I'm not going to say that, right? It is totally just of them to not allow me to enter the race. We would all agree. That's how this thing works. That's the point of the story here. God is just. He is. He always gets it right. He never gets it wrong. No worries. No bitterness. Right? Now, think about it, that might drive fear into you. But, guys, we also see the extravagant mercy of God. Because even though Lot doesn't meet the qualifying time, he still lives. If I didn't make the qualifying time and they said, you can still run in the race, what's that called? That's not called justice. That's called mercy, right? That's called mercy. So is God just? Yes. Is anyone righteous? No. My question now is, who are you in the story? I asked that question because I kind of wondered, as even I read this this week, again, I mean, have you ever read this story and even like seen yourself in the story? This is like such an unspeakable, gross story that I feel like we often read it and we just kind of like push it to a distance and we're like, that is gross. That's not, I'm not even a part of this. What a weird story. Moving on, right? I don't know, when I read this story, it's hard to stomach. It's awkward. It's gross. I don't even want to consider it right? If you're an office fan, it's kind of like watching Scott's Tots episode. You can't do it, right? I can't. I can't handle it. Same thing here. It's unspeakable. P. 
People are wanting to beat each other up, assault each other, kill each other. You have literal human trafficking of daughters. You have incest. This is a horrible story. It's one of the worst. And when you read it and I read it, I wonder, where are we in the story? Who am I? Who am I? When we do this, we read stories, we always attach ourselves to somebody. We either want to be like them or we just kind of resonate with that person. We do when we watch movies or whatever. Who are you? You're like, I don't, I don't know. I've never thought about that. Maybe I'm like an angel. Or I'm like warning people, you know? Or like, I'm, I'm like Abraham. I'm like a prayer warrior, right? You know? But quite honestly, guys, if we're going to be really real this morning... I don't think we're much like Abraham. We're not much like the messengers. We're a lot more like Lot. We're a lot more like his wife. We're a lot more like his daughters. Now, you might sit there and go, Josh, you're just really out of touch, okay? Um, uh, I'm minimizing this sin or something. Like, I have a bad perspective on life. You're thinking, there's no way that I am in this story. This story doesn't relate to my life. I haven't offered my daughters to a crowd of men. I, don't, I didn't sleep with my dad. That's disgusting. That's unspeakable. That's vomit in your mouth kind of stuff. And you know what? You are so right. You are so right. But just think about it. There's a lot of correlation. And it's not just that this took place in a valley and you live in a valley, right? It's more than that. Sodom is a city of wealth, city of materialism, city of influence, pleasure, self-seeking, self-preservation. It's not too different in principle than places that you and I live today. The town we woke up in this morning. And we see Lot, guys, he proves what's in his heart. He lingers. He's told this place is going down and he doesn't want to abandon Sodom, not because he loves Sodom and wants to see Sodom come to know Jesus, right? He loves Sodom the way it is. He lingers in his sin. And he has his, we have his wife. She, she looks back. She leaves, but in looking back, which is what she was told not to do, she proves that she might have locationally left Sodom but Sodom was still very much in her heart. See, looking back carries the idea of wanting to go back. That's what the idea is. It wasn't just mere temptation. It's a strong desire, or there's a sense of sorrow to have to leave. And then his daughters, they get to this cave with their dad. They think no one else is around on this earth. And we talked about this last week. If you were a woman living in this day and time, what gave you your worth? The only thing that gave you worth in life was having kids. So if you didn't have kids, you were nobody. And so they look around. They say, there's no other men. There's only our dad. I got to get my worth somewhere. So they compromise. They go against God's will in order to obtain something that they think is going to give them worth in life. So Lot lingers, his wife looks back, his daughters compromise in order to gain the thing that they think is going to make them somebody in life. And, and really, at the core, guys, are we really much different? I mean, it might look different, but are we really much different? I mean, do you know God's heart for you? And do you know God's heart for the world, and yet you, you still linger in your sin? You're not wanting to really flee from it. You don't really want to be rid of it. You kind of like it the way it is a little bit. 
I mean, do, do you maybe even seek to leave or flee from your sin in a way, but all the while in your fleeing, you kind of have this sense of sadness or sorrow or even desire to go back while you're leaving? Or do you compromise what is good in order to gain what you think is going to make you somebody? See, our temptation, I think, in reading this story is we read it and we think, I am so glad I'm not those people. And really, stories like this just make us feel like we're fine. But Jesus had something to say about this. It'll be on the screen. He told a story to illustrate it. He said, a parable. He told a parable to some people, he said, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everybody else. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, another a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this, this guy over here, this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, Jesus told this to people who thought they were sedekah, right? Because they trusted in themselves that they were this way, they therefore looked down on everybody else. It doesn't mean that they looked on everyone else's sin and said, that's bad, right? That's appropriate to know what's good and what's not but they actually looked at people and said, I'm better than you. I don't know about you, but that's how I feel when I read this story, if I'm being honest. So my question is, do you have a true view of yourself this morning? A true view of yourself. I had a pastor once challenge me, he said, uh, if you wanna know what your true heart is like, just, just look at yourself when, when no one else is watching. He's relating it to worship. He's like, the heart of worship is not what we all do in here on a Sunday. It definitely is. But you and I, we can, we can perform, right? He's like, real worship is what you do when no one else is watching. So in those moments, are we lingering? Are we looking back? Are we compromising in order to gain? Guys, we live in a day and age where we all think we're generally good, we, we judge the outside, and if we only compare ourselves to each other and compare ourselves to those who we think we're better than, then we will never have a true view of ourselves. I mean, just imagine a, a, a culture that we all lived in. Let's imagine we all live in a culture where nobody showered, ever, okay? Some of you are like, sweet, okay? Which, that's gross. But um, let's imagine that we all lived in a culture where nobody ever showered. We'd never even heard of showering, Okay? What's going to happen, right? Well, we would all have a certain definition of what we thought clean was, right? We would all have a certain agreement on that. We'd all have a certain perspective on what clean was. So the person who's just caked with flies and mud or something, we're like, I'm not as bad as that guy, but we just stink, right? We're still really dirty, that sort of thing. But what happens when someone walks in from outsider of culture from a different one? And in that culture, they have showers, all right, what's going to happen? We're going to all of a sudden realize, wow, we have a really different definition of clean. Right? Like, that's way cleaner than me. Right? I, I thought I was a bit cleaner than that guy because he's caked in mud, but geez, look at this guy. Right? He smells good. Like, I want to smell him. Right? 
Like, we, we, things would begin to change, right? Really change. See, here is the danger of stories like this in the Bible. Stories like this, guys, it could push you towards being a Pharisee, or it could honestly, it could push you into the arms of a merciful God. That's our opportunity this morning. You could be pushed towards being a Pharisee or pushed in the merciful arms of God. I mean, do you remember Abraham's question, which is really our question? If God could do anything, if he could really do anything, is he just? And the answer is yes. And, and just like being a, a, a slow runner, we realize, well, this stinks then. I can't make the qualifying time. But he's going to be good and right in judging me, right? So what is our hope? What's my hope? Is it for justice? No, my hope is for mercy, my hope is for mercy, and that was Lot's only hope, and he didn't even realize it. Because Lot experiences the mercy of God, and he doesn't leave and build an altar and worship God and thank him. Not at all. He's still clamoring for stuff of Sodom. It, it, it wasn't a hope for justice, it's a hope for mercy. That's the only thing Lot had, it's the only thing that I have. But guys, if God is merciful, then is he not just? If he's merciful, then is he not just? How could God be merciful to us and still be a just God? How could he do that? If none of us are really, truly righteous, if none of us are sedekah, really, you know? Well, guys, there's amazing news. Because in asking the question, is anyone righteous, you fast forward in your Bible a few pages or two, and you get to the answer to that question, you get to the answer of yes, there was one. We get to the life of Jesus and we see that Jesus is the way better lot. He never lingered in Sodom. He never looked back. He never compromised because he already knew the worth that he had in the love that his heavenly father had for him. But we also read a story like this and we see that Jesus is the way better Abraham. Because Abraham, we're told, was justified by faith. He was righteous because of his faith in the future Messiah, but Jesus was the Messiah. He was righteous. He didn't have to put his faith in anybody. He was the righteous one. But Jesus was unlike Abraham, and not only that he didn't just intercede for the city, but Jesus entered the city. He entered the city in order to save the city, but beyond that, he doesn't just save the city by just living in the city so that God wouldn't sweep away the wicked with the righteous. He saved the city by taking the judgment that was going to come down on the city for those who lived in the city. So only the righteous took the justice of God. The only one who was ever righteous, Jesus, he took the justice of God so that you and I, guys, could not only just be pulled out of Sodom this morning, but so that we could have the Sodom ultimately pulled out of us. He took justice, Jesus did, so that you could receive mercy. He took the mishpat so that you and I could receive his sedekah. But he doesn't just give you outward righteousness, guys. He gives you a new heart and new desires, and he starts this process of pulling the Sodom out of you. Richard Sibbs once said, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. There's way more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. You see, when we read this story, 
What's the thing that stands out to you? I would bet that what most stands out to us is just the grossness of the sin, right? And then maybe we get to the point, we just think, man, my sin is gross. But still, that, that's, not where, that's not the biggest thing here. Honestly, guys, the biggest thing in this story is it just puts on the most glorious display ever the justice and the mercy of God. And we see those things come together perfectly in Jesus. What this story presents to you this morning is that Jesus is really, really big. He's really, really amazing. He is so merciful. Guys, whatever you make your identity out of, you'll never be free from it. If you make an identity out of your pain, you'll never be free from your pain. If you make your identity out of your sin, you'll never be free from your sin. If you make it out of good things, like family even, you'll never be free. If you make your identity out of comparing yourself to others, then you'll never be free from your sin. If you make your identity out of the mercy of God and your identity becomes rooted in Jesus' advocacy and his righteousness for you, then you'll start to be free this morning. And in your newfound freedom, I'll tell you what, you won't linger as long. You won't look back as often. And you won't feel the need to compromise yourself in order to gain some fleeting worth in life because you'll have your worth wrapped up in Jesus. Let me just finish by saying this, though, guys. It doesn't just stop with you, though. It doesn't stop with me. It never stops there because remember what true tzedakah is. It's a right relationship with God and right relationship with others. So if you've been a recipient of the extravagant mercy of God, guys, you now have the resources to be a person who gives extravagant mercy. That every time someone wrongs you in your workspace, in your marriage, or your kid, or whatever, you don't have to demand justice every single time, but you now have the resources, you now have a paradigm to extend mercy. To extend mercy. Mercy is not giving people what they deserve, and you won't need justice every little time something is done to you. If you feel the need to do that, then you need to see how merciful God has been towards you, that he doesn't deal with you according to you, but according to Jesus. I mean, do you have a category for that? Do you have a category for that when somebody wrongs you? I tell you, if your tank is filled with that, you will dispense it. I mean, if my life is a pitcher, and it's filled, if I want to give you lemonade, right? That sounds great on a hot day. Lemonade, what has to happen? You got to put lemonade in the pitcher, and then I can give you lemonade. So in the same way, guys, if, if you want to be a person who dispenses mercy, God wants to cultivate in your life today how merciful he has been towards you. How merciful he's been towards you. Guys, the mercy of God, seeing that, savoring it, it doesn't just get you out of, start, out of Sodom, it starts getting the Sodom out of you. God is just, he always gets it right, he never gets it wrong. But praise God, he's merciful then. Because of Jesus, these truths come together, and my prayer for us this morning is that he gets really, really big because of that in our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, God, would you bring...
conviction upon our lives this morning. Uh, would you bring hope uh, as well? Lord, would you just magnify your justice and mercy? Would you put Jesus on display in front of us in a way that would really not only change our lives, but change um, this world? It changes the world, God. What we know as we look in the world, there's just so much injustice. God, and we get angry at that, at least we should. God, and I, I'm just, I pray, Lord, that we be people who do desire justice, but who also know how to give mercy. Or that we would seek out just the equity of people who are suffering, who are being wronged, people who are being trafficked, Lord, just horrific things being done in our time. There's pockets and spots, and really entirely this world, Lord, just we turn on the news, Lord, it feels like Sodom. And Lord, I pray that, that we would be people who are sent out um, displaying and showing and sharing of this good news that we all have in you, Jesus, how there's mercy to be had. And Jesus, I'm just so thankful that there really is, there's more mercy in you than there is sin in us. And I pray that would land in our hearts today in a specific way that would change us from the inside out, that we might be people who, who leave this place today with a, bit, with a bigger hope, a bigger savior, and, and, a, and a desire for a better future. In Christ's name I pray, amen.